Our next speaker is Joanna Ruth, who is a member of the faculty of the Bethel School of Nursing for more than 25 years, and most recently served as historian and archivist for Bethel College of Nursing alumni and Bethel College of Nurse and Health Services at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Ms. Ruth lectures on Bethel history for community nursing and student groups and is a community consultant for various groups. She will speak on nurses, nurse, do I have a nurse? <laughs> Thank you. This title is something that I think probably many of us have experienced. Picture yourself in the hospital and you're not feeling good and you can't find the call bell. And you say, nurse, as you see someone flying down the hallway. And then it becomes a little more, nurse, do I have a nurse? I have thought about this question all of my life. And when I came to Bethel in 1974 to teach nursing, uh, I was asked to, Mrs. Ruth, can you uh, also be the advisor to the yearbook? <sighs> yes, nurses can do lots of things. We learn everything we need to learn. Of course, I'd be happy to. And then one day, a group of women came into the hospital, into the, to the school, they were the most wonderful, excited women I had ever met. They were the alumni of Bethel School of Nursing. There are particularly two that I remembered that caught my, my eye and my interest and my love were two graduates from the class of 1927. The stories they told me, I cannot repeat. <laughs> but I learned that these were strong, dedicated, community leaders. They were retired. Yes, they were retired. They were 50-year graduates almost. So am I. <laughs> but I'm not so old, and neither were they in spirit. So these just chance meeting, then let's go forward to 1981. Bethel had been on the move, and I'm going to talk to you a lot about that, but Bethel had been on the move. And the students, yes, from the yearbook said, Joe, you know, we've been moving a lot. Let's celebrate our history. I said, that's a great idea. I'll go across the hall and get the, find out where all the history information is. I went across the hall to the nursing education office, and they said, oh, Joe, we don't have any history. I said, well, where are the files? Oh, we don't have any files. The files are in the hospital office. So I went down the hallway and I said, uh, could you direct me to the archives of the hospital? And, and the individual said, yes, of course. And she turned to her left drawer and she pulled out a file this thick. And I said, uh, well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Where are the, the information from the, uh, when the, the hospital was Bethel Hospital? She said, oh, we don't have any of that. That's all gone. Well, I knew it wasn't all gone because I knew the stories, some of them. I went back to the alumni and I said, it's all gone. And they said, oh, no, 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 it's not all gone. I said, well, where is it? In our basements, our closets, our attic, under the bed, and in our hearts and minds. And I said, tell me about it. 
And then as they realized that I was really serious, only I didn't realize that I was now to become a historian and an archivist. Yes, I was still a nurse, and I'm teaching, and I am a nurse, and I am teaching, but I am now the guardian of that history of Colorado Springs healthcare. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that I didn't have to have the surgery that was just previously described, but in 1904, it wasn't too much better than that in some ways. Um, the Colorado, horse my little thing. So in 1903, Miss, Mrs. I'm going to have to figure out. I'm used to looking to, this, to, the, to the screen, so I'm going to have to get used to this business. The Mrs. Florence Peck and Mrs. Lennox were out driving in Manitou in Mrs. Lennox's new car. Mrs. Peck, who is pictured here, was the, was the wife of Bishop A.C. Peck, they had lived in Colorado Springs and now lived in Denver. They, so they were close friends with the Lennoxes. And they, Mrs. Lennox and Mrs. Peck, who neither one were nurses, they were concerned citizens. They cared about the health of the people in Colorado Springs. Mrs. Peck became the guiding light in the spirit of, the, of this endeavor. Mrs. Lennox became the president of the board. She was the wife of William Lennox, who was a gold tycoon and a loyal, dedicated member of the Methodist Church of Colorado Springs. In 1904 to 1911, this is the Colorado Conference Deaconesses Hospital and Training School, commonly referred to as Old Deaconesses. There were two hospitals in, as predecessors in this building. This building had built in, 19, in 1888 as the uh, Bellevue uh, Sanatorium, and then it had succeeded for about three, four years. It went broke, and then in came another group of national deaconesses, uh, Methodist deaconesses from Chicago. It also had financial difficulties, and the women were concerned. Nurse, nurse, do we have a nurse? Do we have a hospital? So they were said, let us try to establish a Protestant hospital with deaconesses as nurses and bring together a large ecumenical community to support this building. They opened in 1904 with one nurse, the superintendent, and one student. Now, who do you think was caring for the patients? <laughs> it was the student. The uh, as it soon quickly grew, there were other nurses and deaconesses who came, uh, and they had certainly many more students who came. They continued to care for the patients, but they realized that this building was not fireproof. The patient facilities and operating room facilities were certainly less than desirable. The road was very difficult to get up. This building is located, do any of you know where the building is located, was located? east of St. Francis Hospital, up on the hill where the helicopter pad is now. It's a five-acre site. There was no paving, so guess how that, what that road was like trying to get up to that hill in, in the wintertime. So they went to Dr. To, I'm sorry, General Palmer and asking, we need some land for a, a hospital that is accessible and modern. 
Uh, and he said, if you can raise $50,000 for the building, I'll give you the land. They found land out 1400 east, east Boulder, at the edge of the city, at the edge of the city limits. And in 1905, they started uh, looking at financing and becoming a, a new hospital. In the meantime, the patient care continued. We believe this is an image taken in 1909 of Mrs. Clara and May Adams, the deaconesses, and the students. These are the junior and senior students. You can tell by the black stripes on their caps that those would have been the senior students. They would have been responsible for most of the patient care, for teaching the students in the uh, hospital. They were even responsible for doing all of the cleaning um, of the rooms, the stairways, the halls, and carrying patients up and down the stairs if need be. The young lady, can you see the 1910 on their shoes? Oh yeah. These wonderful, spirited, dedicated women were, were the spirit of this hospital. The young woman who has the second from the left, our left, and it has the nine on her shoe, that's Miss Julia Work. She continued to care for patients children in Colorado Springs until her death. She died in 19, uh, wait a she was about 94 when she died. She remembered in 19, uh, six, 1962, she wrote a history of the hospital, of the Deaconesses Hospital, which is why we know more about it than we would uh, otherwise. In 1911, the new hospital was built with the efforts, the great efforts of Miss Florence Standish and outstanding nurse deaconesses, and you'll hear more about Miss Standish uh, with the next speaker. Bethel Hospital was named by Mrs. Peck, was spelled with a all one word, Bethel Hospital, in the beginning. In 1913, the hospital board elected to uh, put a hyphen and a capital E in there. So that's when the name changed. But the name in the document, documentation is the all one word. That's why you see that. The hospital was owned by the Colorado Conference. Uh, Deaconesses, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to read this. The Women's Home Missionary Society of the Colorado Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church. See why I had to read it? It, they had a local board of women who were the managers. They were very um, creative in their gaining community support of the whole, of the whole um, effort. Here are nurses, that uh, very proud nurses standing on the front steps of the hospital. You see their uniforms were the latest of the day. They had blue chambray, long sleeve dresses, with white aprons, white bibs, collars, and cuffs. And woe be unto the student who allowed her cuffs to become dirty or soiled or certainly not rolled up. That was grounds for dismissal at the time. Now, education, nursing education. They had few books, but they worked hard and they learned a lot. They were required to have a certain number of cases to graduate and uh, a number of hours, and they were very um, 
if, if they weren't busy in the OR, they created a clinical experience. You see Sal in the front, that is their practice mannequin, and I don't know if you can see, but that young lady at the left um, has a cigarette in her mouth. Uh, I don't think the supervisor approved this particular clinical experience. It's from Julia Work's private uh, photo album. This image is well known, some, in some ways well known in Colorado Springs. There is one uh, that is framed out in the hallway. These uh, images are from positive glass slides that were uh, taken as publicity photos to, in preparation for the hospital being transferred to, uh, to the auspices of the Methodist Home of Hospitals and Boards and Deaconesses Work, which was a national hospital association. Um, you see these wonderful little baby cribs, uh, the baskets. The doctor in the center is Dr. Timmons. I don't know if some of you may, may know of him. The nurses are holding, the students are holding the babies. The uh, supervisor, second from the left, would not have been holding the babies because that was her job to be the supervisor. In 1917, the nurse's home was built. Previous to this, the students had been living on the third floor of the hospital. Whoops, I keep going, I keep touching that. Um, the, stu the, uh, the nurse's home was built just east of the hospital on, again, land given to the, to the um, hospital by General Palmer. The students had classrooms in the basement of the, of the building and they were um, always were in uniform. We were now beginning to look at, during this era of having college classes or uh, academic classes, because it was always called nurses training, but we were recognizing that nurses training was important, education as well as training. However, the doctors, physicians were still giving the medical topics, and they also signed the graduates' um, diplomas. How many of you recognize this building? It's the National Methodist Sanatorium for Tuberculosis, and it is still standing on the Olympic Training uh, Center campus. It has a storied history, but in 1942, let me find my 19, I mean 22, it was built by in 1922. 24, it was opened in 1926, was built on 20 acres of, the land, of land, again, east of the hospital um, to the city limits. That's Union Boulevard, by the way. North to Willamette, which is a large block of land because there was supposed to be many buildings built here for as the National Methodist Sanatorium. However, as there improved to be a opportunity for patients to have better treatment. We didn't need that much sanatorium. The Bethel students on the sand roof taking care of, of young patients, they were of course treated with rest, good food, nourishment, and good care, but they got awful bored with the rest. This is the Glee Club, the Glee Club and um, Basketball team were formed in 1927. The hospital, as it 
Beth El Has General Hospital in 1922 became reflected its larger um, status, and so we became Beth El General Hospital along with the sanatorium. This was bought by, that was, in 1933, this is a picture of the Glee Club in their formal uniforms, which was also their concert uniforms. The Glee Club and the um, basketball teams were the public relations department. They went out and sang and, and played all over Colorado and in, in the area. They brought in patients, food, students, and money. During the war years, the students wore straight uniforms now, and we had formal clinical rounds, and this poor patient is just there being talked about. The student here is a junior student. She's caring for a child in the hospital. We had then in 1942, uh, 43, the hospital was bought by the city of Colorado Springs, and it was renamed Memorial Hospital. The school, school elected to keep their own traditional name of Bethel. We had a new lab, clinical arts lab, for the students in the hospital in 1958. And this is the uh, dormitories were still used in great, um, everyone had to be in the, in the school uh, dormitory. 1985, Bethel College of Nursing was established in 1987, I'm sorry, in 1987 we had our first last diploma graduates, and first baccalaureate of nursing graduates. Our nursing care became family-centered. Here, we don't have the nurses with their babies. We have the mother, father, baby with the student nurse. Our education became much more in-depth. This is not your, your patient that the doctors were operating on. This is a model, and as we increased our college courses, we were now having courses at the University of Colorado in 1965 when the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs opened. We started having courses there earlier. We'd gone to Colorado College. It was a very more expensive for our university courses. In, 1997, in 1997, Bethel merged with University of Colorado, and uh, we became then a, a university offering full university courses in conjunction with, with that institution. Our clinical experiences now, here is the last of the mannequins that we have, it's called Sim Man, and we can now use this Sim Man as a clinical experience for in-depth communica learning communication, technical arts, the anatomy, physiology, and a response to the clinical situation without requiring the patients. We now have, would you believe, 17 different nursing schools vying for experience in our hospitals in Colorado Springs? 17. Our students now go in, in let me share with you where our students our graduates are, are now providing nursing care. They are, can be found in people's homes, 
community centers in public health, county, school, and health clinics, forensic services, military assignments, gerontological settings, rehab centers, acute care hospitals, practicing in nursing research and publication. They are working as registered nurses, nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, and nurse educators. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going the wrong direction. Yes, we do have Bethel nurses. 1904 to 1987, the diploma nurses. 1985, the baccalaureate nurses. 1993, we have nursing and health sciences. 1994, masters of nursing and the nurse practitioners and clinical nurse specialists. 1997, Bethel College of Nursing Health Sciences at UCCS. And in, in 2007, we added a doctorate of nursing. As of now, we have 3,114 nurses have graduated from Bethel School of Nursing, Bethel College of Nursing. Yes, you do have a nurse. Our next speaker is Lynn Giflin-Morton, who has a combined background in biological sciences, health, and education with an interest in historical research and writing. She has begun to investigate the history of health care in the Pikes Peak region, focusing on collecting the stories and records surrounding the regional growth of health care between 1860 and 1980. She co-authored the history of health care in the Pikes Peak region and is a private consultant specialized in health care. Her talk today will be the women who fashioned health and caring for individuals and communities in the West, 1870 to 1970. Thank you, Cal, <clears throat> and good morning. This is Hygieia, the Greek goddess of health who stands atop the town clock on the north side of Manitou Avenue. This <clears throat> iron-willed immortal lady has stood watch over the health and well-being of the community of Manitou since 1890, a long 118 years. The women in my presentation today are as noteworthy as Hygieia. However, I must admit, they, like you and I, are but mere mortals. All the papers presented today will be published, and I hope you will read them. And in my paper, you will learn about these historic women of health and caring in the immediate Pikes Peak area. Marie Gwen Glockner, the original owner of Glockner Sanatorium, the Sisters of Charity, the Sisters of St. Francis, the Sisters of Mercy, and some of the work done to establish the Children's Nutrition Camp. But for today, I will introduce you to 10 other women and some of the barriers and obstacles that they encountered. Who are these 10 women? Five of them have careers in healthcare, plus five others from equally important endeavors. Four of today's women are our contemporaries, ladies whom I've interviewed recently and who have given me permission to tell a little of their stories. We will use this pre-1900 map to identify their communities. 
The time period covered for today is between the 1870s and the 1970s. But for the most part, the women that I feature today made their contributions between 1910 and the mid-1970s. Sister Blandina Sagali, a Sister of Charity, arrived in, from Cincinnati to serve as an educator in Trinidad, Colorado, near Raton Pass in 1872. Soon after arriving, she insisted that a new school be built, and it was. During her assignment in Santa Fe, New Mexico, she rounded up the initial funding for the first sanatorium in Santa Fe. She returned to Trinidad to continue in the school once again, but later was told by the local Trinidad business leaders that if she were to remain as an educator in the free public school, she would have to change her mode of dress. In other words, remove her habit of the Sisters of Charity. Imagine asking a present-day surgeon to give up her scrubs, a family physician to give up her stethoscope. No, she said, and the mother house in Cincinnati assigned her to another community. Jesusita Aragon grew up in the Trujillo and Las Vegas, New Mexico area. After finishing her eighth grade education, she was not allowed to go to high school. Her grandmother trained her to be a midwife, and Jesusita began delivering babies in the 1930s. Later, she passed the exam for her midwife certification from the New Mexico State Health Department. Her records show that during her career, she delivered 11,924 babies. Later in her life, she used the rooms in her home to provide a halfway house for mental patients who were wards of the state of New Mexico. Joe, our contemporary, began her career as a classroom teacher in the early 1950s. She taught in the schools in Raton, New Mexico, and in Cokedale, Trinidad, and Honey, Colorado, for a total of 22 years. Her care of students in her classroom, in addition to their classroom lessons, is told in the story of a little girl we'll call Betty. Joe said, her hair was all matted and dirty. She came to school early, every day, and I tried to show her how to comb and care for her hair. But it didn't take me long to realize, too, that she was coming without any breakfast. I began bringing cereal and bananas, then started bringing something for the other students who might need a mid-morning snack. When the weather turned especially cold that fall, I took a hat, mittens, and a scarf and laid them on the table. I told Betty she could have them if she wanted them. She wore them all winter. Gloria grew up in Sopris, Colorado. She graduated from the University of Colorado Medical School in 1956 during the era when the quota for women students was 5% of the medical school class. As a graduate, she began her medical practice in Trinidad in a practice group of four male physicians. One of her first battles was to prove her mettle to the mining and railroad companies in that area. You see, those companies didn't know about Doc Susie, who had already proven that women physicians and male patients get along just fine. Gloria's doctor-patient relationship turned out well also. One of her male physician colleagues explained the situation like this. You could always tell when the guys were coming to see Gloria. They'd get off the elevator wearing a shirt and tie. When they came to see us, they were wearing their coveralls and their work boots. 
Mary graduated from Seton School of Nursing at Glockner Hospital in Colorado Springs in 1949. She returned to her hometown of Trinidad, Colorado and enjoyed her work in two different physicians' offices. But she also enjoyed her position as a medical surgical nurse at the Mount San Rafael Hospital in Trinidad. In those days, just 50 years ago, there were no cardiac care units, no intensive care units, no orthopedic floors, no oncology sections, at least not in small rural hospitals. All those beds were on the med surge floor. In 1973, Mary took a position as director of nursing at the state nursing home, but she was not in the right place. She told me, I only lasted a year at the nursing home. It was really depressing for me. I was responsible for the care of patients, of families I'd known all my life, and I, I felt a particular responsibility to them. I could not get it all done. I have immense admiration for Mary for completing a course correction in her career. She returned to the hospital and found joy once again in the med surge environment and as the instructor of the clinical portions of the licensed practical nurse courses at the hospital and at the junior college in Trinidad. Now, let's move up the road and meet five more women in El Paso and Teller counties and in Denver. Florence Standish came to Colorado Springs in 1910 to become the superintendent of the Deaconesses Hospital and became the superintendent of the new Bethel Hospital that same year. In 1912, she adopted this tiny little boy whom she'd taken care of as a premature baby. She left Bethel in 1913 and developed Knob Hill Lodge, a home for tuberculars until 1918. She left Colorado Springs for a year to serve as an army nurse and after she returned to her Knob Hill Lodge, she adopted a baby girl in 1920. From 1920 to 1924, she continued to run her Knob Hill Lodge as a business. But tragically, sometime in 1925, Florence contracted diphtheria, and because it is a contagious disease, she could no longer practice as a nurse and no longer run the home for tubercular patients. Her daughter Barbara, whom Joe Ruth and I spoke with just a few weeks ago, remembers that they moved to California for one year, probably 1927, so that other family members could help care for Florence. They returned to Colorado Springs in this photo of a frail Florence, still able in midlife to get into her nurse's uniform, underscores the remainder of this poignant story. Though she could no longer practice as a nurse, Florence's professional career was transformed into raising her son and daughter, and successfully, I might add. Inez Johnson, whom we know later as Inez Johnson Lewis, graduated from Colorado Springs High School. At the age of 20, in 1895, Inez passed the teacher's exam through the office of the El Paso County Superintendent of Schools. At the age of 34, in 1909, she was elected as the County Superintendent of Schools. Until 1929, she consolidated 58 school districts in the county into 38 and approved the teaching of high school courses in 21 of those schools. Each quarter, she had to track the tax revenues for each of those 38 districts and make sure that each schoolhouse in each district had a safe drinking water supply. She started a child welfare program, started adult education classes, and initiated a circulating library throughout the county. 
From 1931 to 1946, she was the state superintendent of instruction, re-elected every two years in a statewide election. She developed safety courses for children and helped districts across the state to organize school clinics. Inez is in the middle of the front row in the dark overcoat and hat in this photo, taken at the Colorado Capitol building when she was about 66 years old. While she was still in office, she fell one day during a business trip to the Boulder County Courthouse. The state of Colorado refused to pay her hospital and her medical bills. It would, they said, set a dangerous precedent. Ruth Banning Lewis, rancher, civic volunteer, but always a consummate businesswoman. On the Colorado Springs School District Board of Directors, she and other board members struggled to raise funding to replace or remodel antiquated and unsafe public school buildings, three of the worst being Roswell, Midland, and Curtis schools. Ruth supported the district's position to administer scholastic achievement tests if curriculum courses were developed to help students in their areas of deficiency. During World War II, 42 and 43, she was chair of, instructor for, and developer of the Red Cross course to train volunteer nurses' aides. Many nurses had joined the Army, and the hospitals needed help with the non-clinical work such as making beds, feeding, and transporting patients. From 43 to 47, Ruth was elected to the city council during and after World War II when the community was growing by leaps and bounds. But did you know that she resigned from all three of those volunteer positions each time because there had been personal attacks directed against her by others in the community? She resigned from the school board when the anti-tax faction in the community began to criticize her with personal attacks in letters to the editor and phone calls to her home. She resigned the Red Cross course committee when others objected to a non-nurse developing and serving as one of the instructors in the upcoming next phase of the nurse's aid course and she resigned from city council when attacks became personal over her support of the new city manager council form of government and her open and public support of the beleaguered city manager. Well, you know the quote, man's reach should exceed his grasp. And you know the other one, know when to hold him, know when to fold him. Ruth's reach far exceeded the grasp of a small-minded and vitriolic minority in the community, and a valued civic leader simply folded him and moved on. In 1915, Marjorie Verner Reed, the daughter of Verner Z. Reed, came to Glockner School of Nursing to take the World War I, thank you, version of the nurse's aid course. She then enrolled at the University of Denver. In April of 1919, Verner Reed died, and just a few weeks later, in May 1919, Marjorie graduated from the University of Denver. She took a faculty position there, then in 1920, married a young career diplomat, Paul Mayo. She went to South America with Paul in early 1925 and while there contracted dysentery and became critically ill. She returned to Denver and died in May 1925. Her mother, Werner's wife, Mary Dean Reed, commissioned a sculpture 
that still stands on the campus of the University of Denver. The inscription reads, erected by students, faculty, and friends in memorial of Marjorie Reed Mayo, 1919, and in appreciation of the benefactions of Mrs. Berner Z. Reed. What else did Mrs. Berner Z. Reed or Mary Dean do with the $12 million estate left by Verna Reed? She became known as Lady Bountiful. She saw her position as a trustee of the family's money, and her role was to give to the less fortunate. She was active politically in the National Women's Party, and she's seen here with two of the Sisters of Charity, and Sister Cyril is on the right, at the laying of the cornerstone in December 1940 for the Marjorie Reed Building at the Seton School of Nursing, for which she donated a half a million dollars. And these are the students later enjoying the Marjorie Reed Nurses Residence. But Mary Dean's giving began in 1920, as she contributed annually to the Denver Community Chest, built a wonderful mansion which she used as a site for nonprofits, meetings, and fundraisers, and gave money for a children's and women's clinic in downtown Denver. She reopened a mine in Cripple Creek during the Depression so men could be employed. In 1935, set up a trust fund for a day nursery in Denver, and in 1940, gave to the University of Denver for the third building. And when she died in May 1945, her estate totaled $12 million. Travel with me to Teller County, where Bernie became a school nurse in 1967 for $3 an hour. For the 1,200 students in the school district, she kept immunization records current administered the student screenings, took sick students' temperatures, then called the parents, and she was responsible for, report, for reporting any cases of suspected abuse. She also was the medical attendant at the football and basketball games and the track meets. When I asked her if that meant home and away, she said yes. I asked if the athletic bus were leaving for another community, was Bernie on the bus? She said, no, I had to drive my own car. So there are the ten women, five with careers in health, Jesusita the midwife, Gloria the doctor, Mary the nurse and nurse educator, Florence the nursing administrator and sanatorium entrepreneur and mom, and Bernie, school and community nurse, Sister Blandina, educator and fundraiser, Joe, compassionate classroom educator, Inez, educator and, educator and administrator, Ruth, businesswoman and civic volunteer, and Mary Dean, philanthropist. From Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado, there are three books that also tell of women's efforts in health and caring. Mother Lode is the history of Butte, Montana, as told entirely by women, how they organized around ethnic, cultural, racial, professional, and neighborhood groups to provide, among other things, a hospital, a physician practice, an orphanage, and a women's labor union. Behind Barbed Wire is Velma Kessel's self-published book of a diary that she kept while she was a Caucasian nurse at the Heart Mountain Japanese internment camp in northern Wyoming. She relates in her book that she enjoyed working with the Japanese-American doctors who provided care for the internee families. And in southwestern Colorado in Silverton, the Hillside Cemetery books by Frida Carly Peterson tell of her work for almost 30 years to tell the personal and family histories of 3,000 burials, including her book, Faces of the Flu. 
In a recent telephone conversation, she said, those people have become my friends. And so we have gone from womb, Jesusita's midwifery, to tomb, Frida's accounts of death and dying. I hope you will agree with my conclusion. Stylishly and elegantly, with great wisdom, passion, and commitment, individual women have fashioned health and caring for individuals and communities in the West. These are the organizations that contributed the map and the photos that I've used today. Bethel Alumni, Tut Library Special Collections, PPLD Special Collections, and University of Denver Archives Special Collections. I thank my contemporaries and Florence's daughter, Barbara, and I thank you. Lynn, why don't you just stay there, and I'd call on the other three speakers. Why don't two gather at the podium there and two gather here, and we have about 10 minutes for questions. So, gentlemen, if you'd step up here. We do have a microphone that uh, Dennis is going to take around uh, for questions. Uh, so speak into the mic and direct your question to the appropriate person. Any of you. Why didn't the Sisters of Charity give their name to the new health center? I think that question probably could be best answered by the board. <laughs> uh, my question is to Joanne Ruth. I'd like to know if in 1945 there was a separate building connected with Memorial Hospital on the west side of the main hospital. My father was here. It seemed to me that there was a building called the Pest House, which um, housed people with community diseases? There certainly was. Uh, 19... Sorry, thank you. Um, in 1918, that building was the Pest House or Contagion Hospital was built. It opened just in time to uh, take care of patients with the flu as they were carried all over the, the city. That building continued. It was owned by, as I say, by the city and county of, uh, uh, city of Colorado Springs, county of El Paso and it was staffed by Bethel nurses and doctors, uh, and it was used through the polio epidemic. Where is Fort Massachusetts? Uh, Fort Massachusetts, I believe, is just, was north of where Fort Garland is. Uh, it, it, it was not as good a location, I think, for water and everything, so it was abandoned. Uh, it had a brief existence, and it was abandoned, and then Fort Garland was established. There's a good article in, in one of the Colorado history magazines uh, of some years ago on the history of Fort Massachusetts. This is just a little question, but I'm interested in the caps that the nurses wore in the Bethel Hospital, because I was a graduate of St. Louis City Hospital, and we had the same type of poofed caps, which were horrible. <laughs> Oh, you, um, yes, there were many, many comments. You were very proud, uh, 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 very proud of your cap, and yes, it was very difficult to create. Each school of nursing had their own unique cap. Some were similar, of course. You could only design so many different ones, but you'd be amazed how many. Um, and and in, the, in the era of caps, women wore, when they were dressed, ready to go out, you wore a hat, right? and gloves or long sleeves in the case of nurses. Uh, so 
Each cap was slightly different. This, this particular cap, we believe to be a design by, by deaconesses. It makes some sense. We really don't know. And so it would depend on where, where you went to school. Uh, I do not know that it was the same cap. I, I doubt that it was I absolutely identical. St. Louis City Hospital School of Nursing uh, was founded in, at about the time of the Civil War. And they told us that our cap was designed from um, sunbonnets. That was the idea behind that type of cap. Very, very likely true. Yeah. Okay, um, Mr. Headley, you're still working as a interpreter at Bensport? Yes, ma'am. I'm a volunteer. I'm actually a park ranger at John Martin Reservoir, where I give I mostly do interpretive programming. And I gave this a longer version of this program up in Denver several weeks ago. Uh, and that, that lasts an hour and 20 minutes. Okay, <laughs> but I still volunteer at the fort. Matter of fact, they're having a training program for interpretive people there today, and they are without a doctor. Oh. <laughs> so, okay, when, when could we go visit the fort and expect to see you? Uh, I will be there on Columbus Day. Uh, they usually had the Santa Fe Trail uh, Day and end of July and 1st of August, which was the traditional time that the Army of the West passed through there. But uh, all of us are getting old. We can't stand the heat. <laughs> so we now do it in Columbus Day in October. I'll be, I'll be on duty then. And then the first weekend in December, the Christmas program, which is a very nice program, uh, I'll be there practicing my skills. <laughs> well, I have a question. Um, for the four of you, would you say there was anything uniquely Pikes Peak region in the topic that you looked at or the people that you looked at that might not have pertained elsewhere in the United States, uh, something that uh, uh, drew people or uh, influenced the type of practice that they had or uh, um, can be cited as, this is Colorado. I've often wondered what it would be like to know that you had tuberculosis and to know, finally, to realize you were not going to get better, and to look at the peak, would it be as beautiful or more beautiful then? Uh, by the way, I'd like to say that the past two days, the, pipe, the peak has looked beautiful because of that snow. It, uh, it, it's like the old days. So uh, anyway, when it comes to the military surgeons in the West, um, there are two things that when you read these reminiscences, the experiences in Colorado were pretty much the same as at other army posts during other campaigns and so forth. But the doctors were part of Colorado history. Now the army doctors stationed in Colorado are part really of national history. But the one thing that I could say in the reminiscences uh, is the doctors enjoyed uh, coming to Colorado generally and being stationed in Colorado because of the climate. And, and they found generally fewer health problems in Colorado, although scurvy was a problem, for example. 